right, all right. So we're going to be back in the book of Jonah this morning. And um, if you're using a chair Bible, I believe it's on page 727. We're going to be reading Jonah chapter 3 this morning. I was thinking about this this morning. Um, you know, many of you have been here the last couple of weeks where Pastor Bill preached uh, chapter 1 and chapter 2. And um, it's, good to, it's good to affirm people in private. Uh, sometimes it's really appropriate to affirm people in public as well. And so, you know, Bill is one of our pastors and has a full-time job outside of Crossway. And, and he served us so well the last couple of weeks. Can we just uh, celebrate God's goodness through our brother? And <clears throat> I know he feels really awkward right now, and so I just relish the chance to make you feel awkward, brother. But, but thanks, for, uh, thanks for serving us so well, man. Just thank God for you, and I learned so much by your preaching, and, and I know our body's really served by it too. So thank you, brother. I want to read you a quick poem called An Unlikely Preacher. It goes like this. It says, rejecting the call, turning quickly in the opposite direction, away from God's presence with a ticket to see, but running is futile when God's the one from whom you flee. Indifferent and asleep as death springs from his disobedience, desperately calling on their gods, multiplied are the voices. They are chased by a storm that flows from his choices. He becomes his own solution to the nightmare of his situation. Throw me over. It's over for me. I'll be the sacrifice. God may allow you to sink in order to save your life. Swallowed by a fish, God appointed, digested into safety, he cries to the one from whom he ran. God hears, and his mercy vomits him onto dry land. The one who ran from God's presence is now proclaiming God's message. Yet 40 days in destruction is the sentence, but God relents from his judgment when he sees their repentance. And there's a way in which that sums up the book of Jonah that we have a not only reluctant, but a disobedient prophet, a disobedient preacher, and he becomes really in chapter three, what you might feel like is an unlikely preacher. So in chapter one, we saw Jonah's defiance to God's direction. He, in a somewhat comical way, seeks to flee from the presence of God, and Pastor Bill reminded us last week that any attempt to flee from God's presence or to move away from God only leads us to disaster. And certainly that was Jonah's story. God sends a storm after Jonah as a consequence of Jonah's disobedience. And soon after, Jonah is hurled into the sea by the sailors, which Jonah recognizes was actually the hand of God giving him unto the sea. And Jonah's storm of consequences culminates in the belly of the great fish appointed by God. And Pastor Bill highlighted how that the belly of the whale became this spontaneous, necessary prayer room for the prophet Jonah, where at the end of himself with no way out, the only thing he could do was call to God, and God heard his voice, and he answered. And the chapter ends with God speaking to the same fish that he appointed, and Jonah's graciously vomited out upon dry land. As some of you may need to hear this morning, 
you may need to be reminded that if you're a Christian, you're just like Jonah. Because having once rebelled against God, defied his direction, and having been chased maybe in some measure by the storm of the consequences of your actions, God has brought you to the end of yourself. And you've called out to him in belief and in faith and in desperation and he's rescued you and he's brought you, as it were, to dry land. And now he's enlisting a bunch of unlikely preachers to preach a message to the world that isn't necessarily fluffy, often not welcomed, but it's necessary. And we're going to see that today in chapter 3 is we see the change in Jonah. And there's a way that Jonah is like this living representation of what repentance looks like, of what it looks like to turn from self-rule and rebellion and turn to God. And so we have in Jonah this visual depiction of repentance, but we also see the evidence of repentance in Nineveh, in the city of Nineveh, the, the occupants, the inhabitants of Nineveh, and the king of Nineveh, all of it really vividly depicting what repentance is. And so we're going to spend a fair amount of time today talking about repentance. So what I want to do is just read through the entirety of chapter 3, which is only 10 verses, and then we'll go back through and I'll try to make some observations in the time we've got together. Let's go to Jonah chapter 3. And this is God's word for us. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown or destroyed. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily, to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is God's word for us. So in a poetic way, chapter 3 repeats the, the word that came to Jonah the first time. Just a quick glance over it, the beginning of chapter 1, you might remember, and you see how the word of the Lord came in that first time to Jonah. And Jonah, very quickly we see that he turns and goes the opposite direction, defying God's word. And now in this poetic turn of events, again, in keeping with repentance, we see the, the same progression, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, and the result this time is very different. Anybody in here know that we serve a God of second chances? That's good news. 
If you don't know that's good news, let me just tell you, that's good news. That we serve, serve a God who gives second chances to people. And he enlists unlikely preachers, and Jonah is among that number. How many times have we turned away from God's commands and found ourselves chased by a typhoon of his faithfulness, which wakes us up to our self-inflicted difficulty where God gives us another opportunity to experience the blessing found in obedience. We serve a God of second chances. Chapter 3 has three major components. They could simply be put this way. Jonah preaches, Nineveh repents, and God relents. And we'll start with Jonah preaching. Jonah was a changed man, the one who ran from God's presence, now is preaching God's message. Praise God for how he speaks through unlikely preachers. So if you just kind of journey down through verse 1 through verse 4, go there with me. It says, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah. The word comes to Jonah, and the word is essentially arise and go. Arise and go. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So the word for word in verse 1 and the word for message in verse 2 are two different words, two distinct words, and that's relevant. We're here in just a second because what we see is that the word comes to Jonah. The message is given to Jonah, which is the, basically says this, says proclaim the proclamation. The word comes to Jonah, and the word is this, arise and go. The message is this, proclaim what I tell you to say. And then what we see next is essentially just that. Jonah obeys the word in verse 3. Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word. That's the word in verse 1. So he obeys the call to arise and go. Then in verse 4, we see the essence of this message was that he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So Jonah goes, he proclaims the proclamation, It's an interesting detail here because there's this seemingly like a side note about the size of Nineveh. So if you go back to the text, it says this. It says, Nineveh was in the middle of verse 3. Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Beginning of verse 4, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. So there are no throwaway words in Scripture. I've been thinking about this week. Like, Why is this significant? And here's what I prayerfully kind of come to in light of this text is that the picture is whether it's distance or the amount of time it would take to walk around Nineveh, the picture is this, is that Jonah only went in part of the way. So whether it's distance around or time spent to to get through the whole city, he only went a third of the way around or into the city. Why is that significant? Because somehow he was limited whether by choice or ability or just sheer size of the city. What's really sweet about that is that the word of God isn't bound by our limitations because the whole city resounds with the message. So he goes a third of the way in, but the message takes hold on the whole place. So we might be bound by some set of limitations, but... God's word isn't limited by our limitations. That's good, right? It's good news for us. So this great city of 120,000 people, we see at the end of the book, maybe 120,000 unbelievers, could be more people entirely, experienced a revival. We don't know what limited Jonah, but what is clear is this. God's word isn't bound by our limitations. It echoes 
where 2 Timothy echoes this in 2 Timothy 2, 8 and 9. Paul is talking about this from prison at the end of his life. He says, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel, for which I'm suffering bound with chains as a criminal. He says this, but the word of God is not bound. It will accomplish the purposes for which God sets it out to accomplish. So take heart, unlikely preachers, that God's word isn't bound by your limitations. His word will do its work. Our call is simply to be faithful, to respond to the word of arise and go. You probably can connect the dots to Matthew 28. The Great Commission is what? Go. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And I'm with you until the end of the age. Our response is to go. So God's word isn't bound by our limitations, and God's word changes people as we faithfully preach. So we saw the heart of the message, and it doesn't necessarily mean this is the only thing that Jonah said. It's likely there was more to the message, but at the center of the message was this bleak, plain picture of judgment. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. We see at the beginning of the book that the evil of the city of Nineveh was so great, it's like it had wafted into the presence of God, like a candle or some evil incense kind of rises to the heavens. And their evil was great. And therefore, their judgment would also be great. So maybe something of what we should hear from verse 4, this yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown, the fact that God gets a hold of these people through a simple, very bleak message is maybe essentially this, like Jonah, Matt, people of God, proclaim what I've told you to proclaim. Give the people the message. Don't water it down. Don't change it. Don't make it more palatable. Proclaim the proclamation. That is the word given to Jonah. Arise, go, and deliver the message that I have for these people. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. The great evil of this city, of these people, has brought about great judgment. Time is short. Turn to God while you can. This, I couldn't help but think of Paul's message in Athens, a very godless, well, in many ways, a city with many gods who didn't really know who they worshipped. And the Areopagus in Acts 17, Paul preaches he draws attention like, hey, you have a tomb to an unknown God, but what you worship that you don't know, we worship what we know, that there is a God. He's created every nation from one man, that by all means we might reach for him. He's determined where we live and where we move. He's not far from any one of us. And he goes on to say this in Acts 17 and 30 and 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, which in some way kind of encapsulates every portion of disobedience in the past. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness 
by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him, that man who will judge in righteousness, the Lord Jesus, from the dead. Like Paul in Athens, Jonah's firsthand experience of the discipline and the mercy of God put him in perfect position to preach this message. And maybe you can identify with that. Like you've known the disciplining hand of God. And you've also known and seen and experienced the merciful, gracious work of God in your life. And what that means in some degree is you are the perfect preacher for the job. Because you can preach the certainty of judgment with the hope of mercy. And that's at the heart of the gospel message. That God has determined a moment where he's going to judge the living and the dead through the one who's been risen from the dead, the Lord Jesus. There's a point in time where you don't have any time left. Repent and believe in the gospel. And that's central to this message in this moment. It's a message of repentance that follows with evidence of repentance. That's where we go next. Nineveh. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. So God's word delivered through Jonah. The message spread assumedly through other messengers who grabbed a hold of the message and believed until everyone from least to greatest all the way up to the king heard and believed the message. I love this picture of the king. Verse 6, the word reached the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne. He removed his robe, this robe that assumedly was probably beautiful and indicative of his power and authority. He took it off and put on a, some sort of cloak of animal's hair, which we refer to as sackcloth, which is a, a garment of mourning, and he sat in ashes. But he didn't just put on this visible depiction. Like it was, it was verbal and it was visible. Like he called out to God. And he issued a proclamation to other people, much like we do. Like we've experienced the, the mercy of God and we, we cry out, we acknowledge our sin before God and we put on, as it were, the clothing of mourning, but then we just declare it out. May others believe this message and repent and believe in the gospel. And you can feel this all-encompassing reaction of the king. His belief in the message that Jonah preached led to personal application and public proclamation. Bill and I were having some exchange about this text after he had preached the first two chapters, and one of the things that stood out to both of us was this, really this picture of what biblical repentance is, and you could word it in different ways. I've chosen three words to try to capture what it truly means, biblical repentance. This is where we'll spend a lot of our time this morning, or the most of our time. And it's these three words, recognition, contrition and transformation. So there's no doubt in this story, there's a recognition of wrongdoing and sin, right? So the king cried out this proclamation. So the, the same word is used in Jonah 1.5. If you go back there, it says the mariners or the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his God. And so this verse 7, he issued a proclamation and published it the same word proclamation is that he cried out. He, he recognized that he was the one to whom this message fell, and he was the one 
who deserved judgment. Not just the city generally, but him as an individual man had defied the God of the universe. And the king cried out, and the people cried out. He commended them to cry out fiercely, mightily with strength and force. This is good for us to reckon with this too. And family, I think some of this, if I could press upon your heart just for a minute, like this is, this is so important for us to grasp that repentance isn't half-hearted. Like apathy and repentance are antithetical to one another. Like if you truly understand and recognize your sin is an offense to an infinitely holy God, there is no room for half-heartedness or apathy. It's an all-encompassing, verbal, and visible turn Yes, remorse should accompany it, but as we'll see, it's much more than just a, an emotional reaction. There's not only verbal cry, but a visible depiction of their brokenness. But the first thing is recognition. You could put confession in there as well. We confess. Confession, biblically, is to agree with God that something is wrong and sinful. So if I confess my sins, like it says in 1 John 1, it's to agree with God that the thing that I envision through the lens of his word, when I see that is wrong and agree with him, that's confession. A recognition that my behavior, my choices, my heart is wrong before God, so we recognize. And the second one is contrition, to be contrite or broken. The whole picture of sackcloth and ashes, they're like the uniform of mourning, the clothing of sorrow in the Bible. So when you see someone in sackcloth and ashes because they're, they're broken, like they're grieved over their sin, there's great remorse over their choices, the pattern of their life that they know defies God and they're grieved by it. You see this in Genesis 37, 34, at the report of Joseph, Joseph seemingly being torn into pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments, he put on sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. The inward change of repentance should be expressed outward. Mourning is the face of our repentance. Daniel 9, 3 says, Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. It's kind of wild here too because you read this. It says in verse 8, But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. We don't have many categories for this. I don't know how many of us have put like black on our dogs when we're repenting over our sin. It seems like a really extreme picture. Like I want you to put the clothing of mourning even on your animals. Like it's so significant. Like you recognize this, your sin so deeply. There's not a creature in your household that isn't affected by your actions. Put mourning on your beasts and your herd. Let them too be covered by the evidence of your wrongdoing. It may seem dramatic, but this pervasive, all-encompassing mourning over sin is consistent with biblical repentance. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, which is a place I found myself a lot recently. If you want to go there, you can, but I want to read a section of it that kind of dovetails into this picture of transformation. 
2 Corinthians 7, verses 8 through 11. I don't know if we'll have this on the TV. I don't think I gave it to Frank in time, but that's okay. 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 11. If, if you can't get there, just write it down and read it later. But here's the picture in this moment in the book of 2 Corinthians. For those of you who know about the Corinthian church, it's a pretty messed up church. So there's a lot going on in the first book of 1 Corinthians where Paul is writing a letter. He affirms God's work in their life. He spends the bulk of the letter addressing all the sin in their midst, including a particular man who is sleeping with his stepmom and seemingly doing so publicly in the church. And so historically, many believe that there was a letter in between 1 and 2 Corinthians called the severe letter. It was written to address that particular thing in their midst. And 2 Corinthians 7 seems to be drawing from that letter because Paul talks about, hey, I heard that my letter had caused you grief. And then he goes on to develop this picture of godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow. He says in verse 9, he says, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved by that letter I sent you, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Okay, pause for a moment. This is really, really important. Paul's introducing two categories of grief. And what it does confronts us with the reality that we can be grieved, but not unto repentance. Just grief does not mean there's repentance. And we'll get to more of that in just a moment. But he's introducing these two categories. There's a godly grief. There's a worldly grief. Godly grief leads to repentance. Ultimately, salvation without regret. Worldly grief produces death. Verse 11, for see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. But also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. As you read this section, at the very least what you walk away with is that when there's true repentance in the heart of a person, in a believer, it affects everything about us. As it relates to whatever sin that we're confessing, recognizing, repenting of, there will be an all-encompassing energy and zeal and passion to move away from that thing unto God. Zeal, fear of sin's consequences, earnestness, eagerness. I'd do anything to clear myself of wrongdoing in the matter. Do you, you sense the emotion in it? This right emotion. There's no place for apathy in the heart of someone claiming to be repentant over their sin. Repentance in and of itself encompasses this deep sense of passion and desire to want to make right what is wrong. And it is possible to have remorse and not repentance. It's possible to recognize the sin and not turn from it. And where we have not turned from sin we have not turned to God. Bill shared in his first message that Satan will gladly provide us a ship to help us run away from God. It's one of my favorite lines of the last couple of weeks. The Satan will gladly provide us what we need to run away, as it were, from God. But I think in this message, too, we should recognize that Satan is 
very satisfied with the people of God recognizing sin, being grieved by that sin, but never being transformed and changed away from that sin. He'll give you the first two, and he might even rejoice if it stops there. If you recognize it, you're grieved by it, but if you're not changed, it doesn't much matter. And Satan will, will let you stay there. Like he'll, he'll distort and deceive. That's, that's what he does. And he'll even deceive God's people into believing that that's enough. It's enough for me to just have an emotional moment over my sin, but not turn from it and find myself there just days and weeks later. And we've been there before. My guess is every single one of us have had that experience. There's certain things in our lives that we've had a moment where we've been confronted. Like we've had a moment at a men's retreat like we had last weekend or a time of worship or a time in the word or a conversation with a friend. And we've been confronted by that sin and there's been a moment of grief and clarity. But slowly but surely, maybe quickly but surely, it just kind of gets muted in the background. We find ourselves there again. And church family, what I submit to you is that's not biblical repentance. That's not biblical repentance. That's recognition, and it may be grief, but it's not transformation. And the hope in that is that Jesus Christ rose from the grave. So the very thing that you feel captive to, you don't have to be hopeless about. Because as we looked at in Ruth, right, every dark cloud for the believer is going to be followed by the the sweet morning of resurrection. And so you have the hope of the resurrected life of a believer, of those who've been filled with the power of God through the resurrected Jesus. But let me say this in a couple of different ways. To the non-Christian in this room who's captive to their sin and walking in self-rule, let me preach Acts 26.20 20 to you. As Paul appealed to King Agrippa, he said, I declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. A mark of the kingdom of God you see in the Gospels was repentance. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. And what that means, you turn from your self-rule and you turn to God. And you hurl yourself upon him in his mercy and find him to be gracious and merciful to forgive. To the disobedient believer, Acts 3.19 says, Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. And the same section from 2 Corinthians 7 commends this deep sense of repentance. To the one who has left their first love, in Revelation 2, 5, there's this recipe given for us. If you've abandoned your first love, here's what you're called to do. Remember from where you've fallen. Evaluate the distance that you've moved in your relationship with God. Repent and return and do the things you did at the beginning. Think about from where you've fallen turn from it and turn back and do the things you did at the start. 
And that's a good exercise. It may seem like a pretty unspiritual exercise to evaluate what it was like when you first knew Jesus. That seems to be part of what Revelation 2 is saying. You might have good doctrine. You may refute false teachers. But you may at the same time have abandoned your first love. Remember from where you've fallen. Repent and turn from it. And go back and do the things you did when you first came to know him. All of us could stand a dose of that this morning. Verse 10 says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. The last point of this message is that God relents. He saw they turned from their evil way. He relented from the disaster. He said he would do to them, and he did not do it. One commentator put it this, uh, this way. He says, we don't obligate God to forgive us when we repent. Instead, repentance appeals to God's mercy, not to his justice. So we're not obligating God to anything, swaying him, as it were, because he's reluctant in giving mercy. We're casting ourselves upon the mercy of God, believing in him, believing in his steadfast love towards sinners who relinquish control and turn to him in faith and obedience. God is not reluctant to relent. Our repentance lays hold of his grace and his mercy. Jeremiah 18, 7 through 8 talks about it this way, and it connects with God's work to Nineveh in this story. God says this. He says, if, if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom like Nineveh, that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it. And if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do it. I love this question from the king. Like, who knows? Like, God may turn and relent from his fierce anger so that we, we may not perish. You know the f- most famous verse in the Bible probably? That God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not what? Perish, but have eternal life. We might ask the questions like, what if, what if the lawbreakers? Like Nineveh's evil was great, so how could God as a righteous God relent from his just condemnation to those who deserve his judgment? How can he be a righteous judge and not judge their sin? And that's a right question. And it brings into full view the gospel of Jesus Christ. The answer to that question is Jesus himself. Because God turns away his anger from those who believe and turns his wrath upon his own son that was owed to us for our sin. So we get what we don't deserve, namely mercy and grace. And Jesus, as it were, received everything that we deserve, namely wrath and punishment because of our sin. That's the hope of the Christian message. And this supernatural, beautiful, wonderful, amazing exchange. As we look at the cross, it's a reminder to us that Jesus became what he was not, namely our sin so that we can become everything that we are not, namely righteous in the sight of God. And that's how God can relent.
because he didn't relent upon his own son, but was pleased to crush him, that he might carry all of our guilt and all of our shame. Trust in him today. And if you are not a Christian in this room, let me commend to you the heart of this message. Repent and believe while you still have time. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ while you still have today. Find him to be merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love to sinful people and allow him to make you into an unlikely preacher for his name. Amen? Amen.